going on, everybody? This is Chris back again with the Wildlife Command Center podcast. Thank you guys for listening and subscribing. I really appreciate it. On this week's episode, it is a throwback episode to like four or five years ago. The first time I tried to start a podcast and then <laughs> was too sissy to release them. I don't know why I recorded like five episodes. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to be releasing those episodes on this the Wildlife Command Center podcast. This week is with Bill Murphy, a peregrine falcon extraordinaire. He breeds like some of the best in the entire country out in uh, California, out on the coast. So I'm going to talk to him about peregrine falcons, his origin story, and a bunch of other stuff. If you guys haven't already yet, please subscribe and leave us an awesome five-star review. That would be awesome. I really appreciate it. And it really does help out the pod. And now that that is out of the way, please enjoy this week's episode with Bill Murphy. Bill, thank you for agreeing to come on to this. It's a pleasure to first off meet you. Just met you yesterday. Come down here to get a peregrine. My grandpa says good things about you. Well, thank you. Good to meet you too, Chris. And your grandfather's a decent human being. It's good to hear nice words coming out of his mouth. Hey. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you. I waited to ask you these until I was recording. So when did you begin your falconry career? How did that start? I got my first falconry license in 1970. I was a student at UC Santa Barbara and a Mm -hmm. friend and I went onto a coastside cliff and took baby red tails at the time. And to get a license, it just required sending $15 to the state of California and they would mail you back a falconry license. Wow. So it was like... I don't, I don't know of any licenses that are like that now, except no. maybe a business license. No, <laughs> it, it, in those days, it was almost easier to kill falcons than, or hawks than it was to get a license for one. Yeah, at one point, there was a bounty out. Yeah. All right. So you mailed in you mailed in your license, and you pulled red tails? Is that what you started yeah. with? Yes, I did. An IS red tail that I kept for three years. Okay. How did that go? This was before B.B. and Webster. This was mm-hmm. before there were any books. Mm-hmm. I think there was... Humphrey Evans, Falconry for You was was it. I had no mentors at the time. I figured that the more I fed my bird, the better it would like me. And it, <laughs> it, we, we made marginal improvement at that rate. And it worked with my dog. It should have worked with a hawk, right? right? Yeah. And and so I stumbled through for three years. I flew the bird nearly daily once I figured out I had to do some weight control. Mm-hmm. I caught one starling. One rabbit, a skunk, a few potato bugs, and little else. Oh and I went out every single day wow. and had nothing to show for it. Dang. Okay. So then. I was too stupid to, to realize. Oh, I mean, what things you were had nothing to yeah. learn from. Yeah. You know, the jump to weight control, and especially with the bird that you pulled that doesn't know anything about hunting, can be a pretty serious one. Yeah. So then after that, when did you make the transition into whatever you flew next? Well, I got a second red tail. After three years, the breaking point came at a field meet at Los Banos, one of the early field meets. I think it was 1974, um, 73 or 74, mm-hmm. where I took the bird out and a game warden saw me on the side of the road with it and stopped and said, I heard you were in town. I wanted to see what these guys did. So I, I said, great. And I swear to you, Chris, this sounds like I'm making it up. At my feet, a jackrabbit got up, mm-hmm. ran two feet, and hit a fence post and, and knocked itself sideways. 
I was way, I had way less too proud than to yeah. let the bird go. So I, I let the bird go and ignored the jackrabbit. It flew, oh. flew across the street where there was a duck club and people were cleaning their ducks, flew over, landed on a bench where a guy was plucking his ducks, grabbed the bird, the duck, the plucked duck, <laughs> screamed at the guy and scared the hell out of him. And I remember the warden just looking at me and going, that was the damnedest thing I've ever seen. And, and I agreed. And I, I got back to the field meeting. The guy goes, that's a really cool bird. And in those days, transferring was much simpler. I said, yeah, yeah he is. He's yours. <laughs> here's, the, here's the glove. Here's the bird. Oh, here's the leash. Man. Here's the swivel. And I handed it to him. And that, oh, the gosh. second red tail I got, I, I caught 100 rabbits in a year with, with you know, was another yeah. eyes red tail. But he was a little bit better programmed. And, and so... Mm -hmm. I automatically became a an expert genius in no time at all. <laughs> right, the first first very successful, yeah, oh, greatest. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. All right, and so my first bird I ever saw was my grandpa flying uh, Tiersel Peregrine. When did you start to make that switch? In 1976, I got my first Prairie Falcon, but at, mm -hmm. at that time, I never thought I'd fly a Peregrine because they were. Right Almost on the extinct. verge of extinction, yeah. yeah. I think there are maybe six or eight left in the state of California altogether. Holy cow. Wow, and it got dire. Yeah, it was it was very low. And that was shortly thereafter the Santa Cruz Predatory Bird Research Group started in, you know, connection with Cornell with Tom Cade mm -hmm. and, and um eventually Colorado Springs. There was a falconry project set up before yep. they moved to Boise. And Brian Walton Set one up in Santa Cruz on a on a shoestring budget with volunteer hippie falconers to <laughs> to run it at the time and and that began the the revolution from near extinction to a recovery. Yeah, straight up recovery. I don't know how many you guys see here, but I see them all the time. They're they're uh, nearly pest birds now. I'd say really. I'd wow. say in five times of flying, my birds in areas around here, three I'll see another peregrine, and mostly they're not too. Yeah, friendly. Too bad. Yeah, well, they're they're not too bad. They don't they no, don't knock the really? birds out of the out That's of the good. air. Plus, I don't fly during breeding season, and that probably makes it a little bit safer. Yeah. So, what's up with um, California and Nevada? Unfortunately, with these peregrines having bounced back so hard, still not allowing for take in these two states. In California, it's not even the Department of Fish and Game. There was a a law passed before the Endangered Species Act where California, to its credit, recognized that peregrines were going nearly extinct. And they put several birds on a, I don't believe it's called threatened or endangered, it's called protected species list. Gotcha. And included on this list were animals like brown pelicans or mm -hmm. they're being threatened badly too, and even stuff like salt harvest mice that were nearly, anyway, it was an all-encompassing list. Mm -hmm. And this was not done by the fish and game, this was done by the state legislature. Yeah. And so once a law is passed, it's really hard to change it. And what made them uncomfortable about changing it once the peregrine came back was this law also protected developers from taking areas and wiping it out by saying yeah. we don't need burrowing owls or whatever the uh, threatened animal was at the time. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want to take it apart piece by piece. Mm -hmm. So the protection comes from the legislature and not from the Fish and Wildlife Service okay. or the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Do you ever think that they'll they'll allow for take? We're working know? on it. It's been worked on for a long period of time, but mm -hmm. once it's it's way harder to undo something than it is to do it. Yeah. And and 
you know, protectionist groups are more likely to, to keep it from happening. Even the Audubon Society doesn't like to see anything that's been protected become unprotected as they see it. Yeah. So we've got that fight, and it's not so much with law enforcement or fishing game as it is with the state legislature and then lobbying groups that don't have the same interest as falconers. Mm-hmm. All righty. So, you know, you started flying a falcon in 76. When did you start moving towards the desire to breed them? Working with, with the Santa Cruz Predatory Bird Research Group, I, I realized I would like to, to be a breeder also. And mm-hmm. 1984 was the first year we bred Harris hawks. Yep. And two years later, 1986, I believe, I got a couple of peregrines. One was a Spanish peregrine Ooh. imported. And one was a bird from John Lejeune, I think, who's in Canada, mm-hmm. where you could get them. And I bred my first peregrine falcon in 1987. That's pretty awesome. Wow. And then as the birds started coming back, you know, and they were they were not protected as severely mm-hmm. as when they were nearly extinct, I did get some birds from UC Santa Cruz. And by the 90s, when they stopped breeding them there, I, I got their stock. Oh, awesome. So uh, that's, several of them. Yeah. And a lot of the birds I have today are, are descendants of the original Peregrine Fund stock. That's pretty cool. In wow. those days, I... I gave back uh, three out of five birds I bred were, were released into the wild. You know, it wasn't like I just started stocking up. I was never as clever. Some people from the Peregrine Fund later on got deer falcons and stuff and, and made a pretty lucrative mm-hmm. living off it. And I, I never did that to make a lot of money. And it, it's worked because I never have. Yeah, we talked about <clears throat> that last night that you don't really breed to make money. I mean, well, I don't a have a CITES export permit. Yeah. And I've never bother to get one and if i were to have one mm-hmm. then birds going to the middle east and and exports tend to make a lot more money than birds staying domestically that's yeah. for sure huh so you said you released a lot of them how was the releasing process like did you hack them i didn't out? myself i gave them back to uc santa cruz and they they okay. had volunteers who would take them to hack sites in areas that were they were formerly found mm-hmm. and have volunteers watch the nests until the birds were fledged okay. flying around on their own. Cool. And that's got to be a good feeling. Yeah. And occasionally yeah. in those days I would take young birds that ran into problems. I'd keep them until they're old enough to be hacked out too. You know, mm-hmm. I, I sort of fostered them. Even back in those days, I even fostered out some marsh hawks, some, some, <laughs> some harriers really? because they, one of the reasons they were in an area where terns were, I guess it was snowy plovers mm-hmm. were breeding and they would take the birds out so they wouldn't eat the snowy plovers. I would raise them. They would be hacked in other areas. Hmm. Snowy plovers and least terns are both threatened birds yeah. and the peregrines are doing so well that, that their recovery puts them in danger. So it's sort of ironic that wow. formerly endangered species endanger endangered species. <laughs> <laughs> now they're endangering other species. Yeah. They're super successful. Hopefully we can use some of that, some of those facts to get take again. Well, there, there's know? the California Hawking Club has worked on it for years. And there's, you know, if you look online or something, you'll say people say, no, they, they're doing everything they can to protect them. But it's like, I don't know if you'd say we're running into a brick wall, but it's... It's, it's a pretty hard wall. Very solidly like made. Re- wall. Re- yeah, regardless, you know, or at least very... Strong wood or something. And it's a long-term and difficult process. Mm. You know, biologically, there's there's no need to protect them anymore, especially with the number of falconers we take. But science and common sense, as we know, doesn't always rule. Jeez, that's for sure. 
So what all what all birds do you breed now? I have one pair of Alpamato falcons, but aside from that, I, I breed exclusively in Adam Peregrines. I've had yeah. several different birds over the years. I've bred mm-hmm. prairies and sakers and harris hawks, different species of uh different subspecies of peregrines, mm-hmm. peels, brookie eyes, tundras. And oh really? Red tundras. Well, I had yeah. at least tundra crosses that mm-hmm. were that were captive bred out of Canada. Okay. And so you fly them yourself. Do you pick? I do. Um, what do you like to fly personally? And Adams. Yeah. Pretty much exclusively now. Those are, the, those are your favorite? Yeah. That's why That's why I breed them also. Right. You know, originally I convinced myself I wanted to breed so I'd have my choice of birds to fly. And then mm-hmm. it was an illness. It was a disease that, <laughs> that you know, expanded from there. But but that's why I decided well, we might as well breed what I'd like to fly. And that's why I stick exclusively with an Adams now. That's awesome. I know, and Anonymous really, that's what started it all for me, seeing my grandpa fly one. And then, so I fell in love with falconry and peregrine specifically. You know, it's everybody's, everybody knows what a peregrine falcon is. Yeah. You know, that Anonymous, that dark cat, peach chest, freaking barred stomach, you know, yeah. dark back. There's just something about them. They're incredible birds. Yeah. I'm really excited to fly my first one. Yeah, you got a you got a state-of-the-art model right there, too. <laughs> or, you know, very handsome boy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm flying a Tearsel this year and probably exclusively on Upland, Upland Game up in Nevada. We don't have can, a ton of ducks there. Yeah, if you can find divers and, and they're definitely and stuff are. like that. And and my Tearsel out there has killed mallards, you know, mm-hmm. but it's like having a Harris hawk Tearsel to kill jackrabbits. They can do it. Oh, they absolutely But it, it's sort of pushes their their limits yeah well for those of you who aren't falconers for a long time you may not have heard this but the whole start them on ducks first and then move to upland uh, yeah is that a real thing yeah um there's something about a gallinaceous wing beat all the way from quail up to up to grouse mm-hmm. that excites falcons yeah. and makes yeah. them go for them a lot of people flying high deer peregrine hybrids do very well even with grouse and the birds don't like duck so much yeah and so if you start them out with pheasants or something they're going to react very much but they're going to be maybe a little bit more reluctant or reductant i call reductant. it reductant yeah on <laughs> on um on ducks okay all right i was just curious because like if the so the chc meet is in bishop california next year and i was wondering if i've been flying flying on upland that whole time if i go down and try my hand at ducks is it just going to be you know, am I just going to be beat my head against well, that? You're flying a duck hawk, you know, the, the so, it's, duck hawk, so right? it's, it's possible, but, but you would up your odds of success if you gave him some experience with ducks before he was okay. fully programmed into what he's catching. Can you go, so say you do work with some ducks on them. Can they go back and forth in sure. one season? Sure. Once they, once they get started, once you know, they once know. they know what it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, then I might do that. Um, is it mostly ducks down there in Bishop, or is there are there pheasant or anything like that? I, you know, I haven't been there in a really long time, so I'm not I'm not sure. But I, yeah. I've been told there's all of the above. What I would worry about is the meets in January, and if it's really cold, it doesn't seem like if the ponds freeze over, there's going to be much in the way of ducks. Does it get cold down there? I'm not. Bishop is right up on top of of the Sierra. Is it? Oh, is yeah. it like a plateau? Yeah. If you look at Highway 395, where you are in Reno right now, uh-huh. and you drive down towards Southern California, that 395 sort of is on the ridge of the Sierra. Okay. And there's that many ducks in there. Huh. Well, that's what I'm told. You know, I, I haven't been there in years. Hmm. All right. It should be fun, though. Yeah. I enjoyed the meat in Topaz last year. And oh, they they're say fun. And they that Bishop, Bishop's even better yeah. as far as game. 
Topaz is a good place to fly birds, but it's not necessarily a good place to hunt birds. That's true. That's true. Yeah, big, wide open. Yeah. Definitely eagle presence. But yeah. We had, we had a good time there last year. We had an okay, an okay sky trial. Did you go to that one? I didn't go the... I went the, year, the last time it was in Topaz. I didn't mm-hmm. go last year. Are you going to go to Bishop? I'm intending to, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, let's fly some birds together. Yeah. What are you going to fly this year? I've got a Tearsel and Adam that I kept from last year, and I'm making up my mind on my second bird. I've still got a few out in the, yeah. the chambers, and, and I may fly another female. My seven-year-old imprint, who I caught Dutch with last year also, laid this year and produced some nice hybrids. So I'm mm. wondering if I should retire her or fly her again too. Yeah. So that's where I'm torn. Oof. Yeah. What do you do? She's proven. So you don't want to, you don't want to take a chance with her, but she's, if she's but that she, good of a duck hawk. Yeah. Know, she is she's game pretty hawk. deadly. She's nice too, you know, but mm-hmm. it's always fun to train a new bird as you're yes. about to find out. Yeah, it is. This will be my first peregrine. Oh man. It's going to be so surreal. The bird that started it all for me and I'm going to finally do it. Yeah. I don't know why I've waited this long. I think I just had to come into my own in my own ways, you know? Yeah, it all works out. And Yeah. If you're living in Missouri, well, actually, I guess people in Missouri do okay finding game to fly, you know? They they did. It's starting to, like a lot of places in the East, it's starting to build up a lot. And so is every place else. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to California. To the West. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You still have plenty of places to fly, I hope. No, it's uh, like it's like the walls are closing in on you mm, pretty much all the time. We all need to retreat to Wyoming or Idaho or somewhere. Well, I, I go there a couple of weeks a year just for that. It's like a pilgrimage. It is. To see what it was like, you know. Yeah, you but then I'm gone when winter comes and they don't see that piece of green grass for six months. Mm-hmm. Do you go You go before the winter? Yeah, I go in, in late September, early October. Yeah, okay. When the ducks are there. And oh, it doesn't right. make sense for me to go. Oh, you and, go to fly ducks. Yeah, I, huh. I do because there is some upland game, but that's asking an awful lot of a bird that hasn't seen it before. <clears throat> yeah, especially the, the sage grouse. Yeah, yeah. And it's asking a lot of a dog that's used to flush ducks and, and close by stuff to suddenly want to run in front of a Jeep like it's a, like it's a point. It, you know, it yeah. doesn't work. I got gotcha. you. For me. I guess for some people it does. Mm-hmm. You just got to find what you like. Yeah. And you like ducks. Man, I might need to get out there with you. We'll see. Actually, you know, that might coincide well because I'm wanting to uh, trap a Merlin around that time. And what's his name? Jeremy Bradshaw says that in around that time, there's a whole bunch of really big Merlins in Great Falls, Montana. Oh, yeah, that's way up. Yeah. That eat all of the pigeons and doves up there. Oh, that'd be a good one to get. Because there's a whole bunch of granaries along the river. Yeah. Where they put the grain on the boats. So there's a whole bunch of doves, and then there's a bunch of falcons that eat those. That would be cool. Yeah. Like a yeah, proven you, dove eating Right. It, you, would, you would know what they did because they're doing it. Yeah. He said that he would come out of coffee shops and, and they would just be on the sidewalk eating a dove yeah. and leaving, have a care in the world. Very cool. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Man. And then in. If we're both up there at the same time, I don't know, and if I'm focusing on Upland, we wouldn't have to compete no, with the game. Be, be, no, yeah, <laughs> I'll so take my Vesla out. Yeah, we'll have a gang of Vislas. Yeah, will you have your female back by then? Yeah, yeah, she's coming back next week. Oh, that's cool. Or yeah, next week. Every you know, every long winger, and he gets to go as long as he's got four legs, right? You know, yes, he's on a lifetime scholarship. Lifetimes, he's made his. Yeah, he's, he's earned his place. Exactly, isn't that right, Henry? No. Yeah. Awesome, man. So you're going to fly two birds this year? I believe so. Two falcons. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to do the same. 
couple few birds myself. I hope you have a great season, man. Well, Chris, I appreciate that. It's yeah. fun talking to you. Likewise. Hey, thank you for getting me a bird and thanks for having me out here. Excellent. Alrighty. Okay. See you later, everybody. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this podcast. This is Michael Baran, aka Bare Hands Baran. Make sure you go now to Discovery Plus, download our reality TV show, Bare Hands Rescue, where we are out there every day rescuing people from wild animals. It is entertaining, it is engaging, and it is informative. Download it today and listen for our next podcast.